So, Heavenly Father, we've just sung, bless the Lord, O my soul. And Lord, uh, we ask your blessing upon us. We pray that you'd speak to us, and you'd encourage us and challenge us. Uh, Give us ears to listen and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. There are some readings you're happy to give to others. There are other readings you kind of feel you need to do yourself. This is one of those you feel you need to do yourself. It's quite a dry introduction, isn't it? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituria, Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas... It's dry, but it's important. It's dry because it's, well, it's historical facts and figures. It's important because, well, it's historical facts and figures. And history is important for Christians because our faith is centered upon, dependent upon, a historical figure. George Ladd is a, or was a New Testament scholar And he wrote this. The uniqueness and scandal of the Christian religion rest in the mediation of revelation through historical events. The uniqueness and scandal of Christianity is that it rests in revelation, God revealing himself. How? Through historical events. The Christian faith stands or falls with the person of Jesus Christ. The Christian faith stands or falls with the historicity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. In this, Jesus is utterly unique. The Gospels are full of incredible claims he makes for himself and others make for him. If we would understand anything about the Christian faith, if we would understand anything about who Jesus is, we need to engage with those claims. Muhammad says, follow the five pillars of Islam. Buddha says, follow the eightfold path of enlightenment. Marx says, follows the precepts of communism. And Jesus says, Follow me, and you will have life in me. Jesus says, trust in God. Trust also in me. Jesus says, believe in God. Believe also in me. He draws a a parity between himself and Yahweh, the God of Jews, the God of heaven and earth. Further than that, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the God of heaven and earth. Buddha is dead. Mohammed is dead. Karl Marx is dead. I've stood before his mausoleum in Highgate Cemetery. I used to live not far away. People still go and leave light candles and leave flowers at his grave. Much of the world seeks to live in the shoes of these dead guides, to live according to their teaching. Jesus is different. The church proclaims that Jesus is alive. His tomb is empty. There's no way you can go and uh, lay flowers in memory of him or light candles for him. And Christianity is not a code for living 
or a philosophy of life or nice stories to encourage us. It's to do with facts and history and truth and life. Christianity is rooted in the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And to some, this is scandalous. Because it draws God down into the particular, and those particular events can be challenged. But at the same time, it's because the truth claims of Christianity can be tested and evaluated that make it so strong, so powerful. Facts matter. Facts matter to us. They mattered to the people of Jesus' day. Luke anchors Jesus in history, and he anchors John the Baptist in history too. It's not just the Bible that refers to Jesus. That refers to the historicity of Jesus. He's also referenced in pagan, in Jewish and Christian writings outside the New Testament. The Jewish Jewish historian Josephus is especially interesting. Uh, A historian of the Roman Empire, uh, a Jew by birth, he was uh, no friend of Christianity. In the pages of his writings, you can read about the high priests Annas and Caiaphas and what he thought of their reign. He's not too complimentary. His evaluation of the rule of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. His view of King Herod, his account of John the Baptist. And two, you can read of what he made of Jesus and his brother, James. Archaeology, too, references the historicity of the Gospels. For many, many years, it was thought that uh, Pontius Pilate was a kind of cartoon uh, villain of history, a kind of uh, pantomime figure. But somebody perhaps didn't really exist. And then in 1961, the first archaeological evidence concerning Pilate was unearthed in the town of Caesarea. It was an inscription of a dedication bearing Pilate's name and title. More recently, in 1990, the actual tomb of Caiaphas, the high priest, who presided over Jesus' trial, was discovered just south of Jerusalem. Even the most critical historians, those who have no time for Christian faith, no time for the claims of Jesus... Uh, can still assert that there was a Jew named Jesus who was crucified under the reign of Pontius Pilate. A man who is attested as a teacher and a wonder worker. They'll note too that that Jesus' followers proclaimed that he was alive and he was both Lord and God. Yaroslav Pelikan was professor of history at Yale at University in America for 34 years, and then he became dean. A student of Christian history, and particularly early Christian history, he specialized in the development of doctrine, of Christian understanding, how the faith of the church grew and developed and changed over time. He wrote many, many books, and in one of those he writes these, this. It's kind of conclusion of his study of the Christian faith. 
The oldest Christian sermon. The oldest account of a Christian martyr. The oldest pagan report of the church. The oldest liturgical prayer. All refer to Christ as Lord and God. He concludes, Clearly, it was the message of what the church believed and taught that God was an appropriate name for Jesus Christ. This matters because our faith is rooted in history. In the historical person of Jesus Christ and his birth, which we'll celebrate in this season, in his death, which we remember at Easter, and his resurrection, which we celebrate on Christmas Day. And it matters to me because every time at this time of year, there are people, sometimes in the church, sometimes out of the church, who tell me, Oh, you must love Christmas as a vicar. And I say, Yes, I do. And they say, Oh, I love Christmas too. It's a great story for children, isn't it? It's a lovely fairy tale for children, isn't it? I say it's the best story for children, but it is no fairy tale. Into this historical moment steps John the Baptist. Luke tells us of John's birth and Zechariah's prophecy over him. Luke 1, verse 76, he will be a prophet of the Most High and will go before the Lord to prepare a way for him. John's ministry is that of being a herald of Jesus Christ. Luke, in our reading, quotes from Isaiah, the prophet, book of the Old Testament. John is a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Heralds and engineers went before the king in Jesus' day. And they go before kings and queens in our day too. There's a joke about the, the Queen, Her Majesty, isn't there? That everywhere she goes, uh, she thinks that everywhere smells of fresh paint. Because whenever she goes to open a school or look around a factory or visit a museum, there's always a smell of fresh paint. Because a few days before, there's been a guy with a ladder desperately painting and getting things ready for Her Majesty's arrival. There was an article uh, recently in the Times newspaper of a a royal correspondent who'd been on trips with uh, Her Majesty's uh, retinue uh, for over 20 years, and he was uh, giving an interview about what it's like to travel with the Queen and what those who go ahead of the Queen um, have to do. It's a, a big job. They go ahead, they scout the ground, they check the security arrangements are all right, they deal with all the diplomatic issues that could uh, come up, they make sure that she's going to have the right food uh, ready for her. Do you know the Queen has never said what her favourite meal is? She's ne- in any interview, she's never said what her favourite meal is. Why? She fears that she'll be served it on every single visit wherever she goes. The journalist was asked, what's, what's the kind of most nerve-wracking thing for those who receive uh, Her Majesty. 
And he said, well, I've seen princes tremble, I've seen maharajas worry, I've seen uh, presidents and prime ministers uh, fearful about one thing above all others, one thing they're nervous about above all others. What toilet arrangements do you prepare for Her Majesty's visit? In Jesus' day, heralds would go before the monarch. They would get things ready. They would tell the towns they were approaching to be prepared. The king is coming. Prepare the rooms, get the food in, buy the finest wine, set guards upon the walls. Engineers would go ahead too. The roads would need maintaining. Rivers would need to be forded. Uh, Bridges would have to be repaired. Provisions would be cashed in advance and so on and so forth. Prepare for the coming king. And as the herald of King Jesus, John calls the people to prepare, but not their homes, not their roads, but their hearts. Prepare your hearts for the coming of the king. Verse 3. He went into all the country about the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This was how they were to prepare. This was how they were to get ready. They were to repent. This was the message of John the Baptist uh, before Jesus' ministry begins. Repent, get ready for the forgiveness of sins. And this was the message of the church after Jesus' ministry, after his death, after his resurrection. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. There's a continuity in theme and teaching. Remember the birth of the church at Pentecost. The disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Peter spontaneously preaches to a great crowd. He tells the story of who Jesus is. He tells of his life and his death and his resurrection. And he castigates the crowd. You put Jesus to death, he says. He's preaching in Jerusalem. We read this. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. What do we do? Repent and be baptized. In Acts 3, there's a a similar scene. Peter and John have been used by the Lord to heal a lame man at the temple gate. A crowd gather round. Again, Peter begins to preach. He tells how Jesus was crucified not far from where they stand, how, how the Jewish Messiah had been killed by his own people. The conclusion to his sermon is precisely the same as it had been at Pentecost. Therefore, he says, repent and return, that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come. Repentance was at the heart of Paul's preaching. I'm not going to go through all the references, but just one for you. In Acts 20, he gathers together the church, the, the leaders of the church in Ephesus, where he's been uh, leading and teaching. 
He prays for them. He tells them he's going to leave them. And he encourages them to keep on the ministry that he started amongst them. Paul reminded them, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and in house to house. I solemnly testify to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repent, repent, repent. Get ready, repent. Before Jesus' ministry begins, after his ministry is finished. Those going ahead of Jesus say repent. Those following behind Jesus say repent. But what does it mean? But, but what does it mean? Story to help us. True story. Historical story. Story portrayed uh, in a film. The film's called The Blind Side. It's often on at Christmas. It's a film we like to watch as a family. It's one of those few films that all five of us can watch uh, together. It's a story of a man called uh, Michael Err. And he's kind of childhood, his teenage years, and then through into adulthood. And uh, it's called The Blind Side because that's a, a position in American football. You know American football, big guys, helmets, pads, all that kind of stuff. When the quarterback is uh, playing, he has a line of people in front of him who defend him. And there's one position called the left guard who's, who's on the left-hand side. And he defends the quarterback's blind side. Quarterback is the most highly paid uh, player on the American football team. He's the one who throws the ball. The second highest player is the left guard. And the left guard is the guy who defends the blind side of the quarterback. Michael Orr is one of the, or was one of the most highly paid uh, players in American football. He's the, the blind side guard or the left guard for the Baltimore Ravens. And millions and millions of pounds. Uh, and the story of the blind side is a story of his life. Uh, he uh, was born in a really rough part of town in America. Uh, grew up in the ghettos. He's an African-American man. And uh, his father abandoned him when he, was, or when he was young. His mother had a very troubled life. And the story tells, uh, the, the film tells the story of his uh, adoption by a, uh, a white middle-class family from another part of town. It's kind of rags-to-riches uh, story, but it, talks about the, it shows the kind of conflict that you can imagine would happen as those two cultures would uh, collide. Um, uh, his mum is called Leanne Toey, and uh, Sandra Bullock won an Academy Award for her portrayal of her in the film. Um, it's not central to the film, but it's an element of the film in that the, the family, Leanne and her husband, Sean, are, are Christians, and uh, it sort of shows their faith being kind of put into practice and challenged by uh, Michael and how they, how they uh, adopt him and raise him as a, as a teenager. We like it as a family because the boys like the American football stuff, and they like the, like the footage of this guy just smashing into people and knocking them flying. And Sally likes it because it's got a nice middle-class Christian family. And uh, every now and again, oh, look, they're Christians. Look, boys, they're Christians. Isn't that good? And the boy's like, yes, mum, we know. We get the message. Uh, Leanne Toey, who's the character who um, uh, Sandra Bullock played, uh, was doing a fundraiser for a homeless uh, charity uh, recently. And she was asked uh, what she thought of the film, and particularly which part of the film kind of most touches her or most uh, resonates her. 
with her. And she said, that is the part where we first meet Michael. And uh, in real life, it took place on a morning, uh, but in the film, for dramatic effect, it's portrayed in the evening. And there, her, uh, Leanna and her husband, Sean, are driving down the road. Um, they've got lost in a rough part of town. And uh, they drive around the road, and it's freezing cold. It's December. And they see this young man. Who is, he's huge, but he's young. He's kind of like 13, but he's massive. And he's walking down the road. It's freezing cold. I think it's snowing in the film. And uh, they drive past him, and they notice he's just wearing shorts and a T-shirt. He has no, has no shoes on. And they, they drive past, and they look at each other, and they look at the window, and they see him as they kind of drive on. And then Leanne says two words that will change her life, that will change her husband's life, and will change Michael's life forever. Turn around. Turn around. Slow down. Turn the car around. They go back. Stop this young man who's in distress, asking where he's going, asking what he's doing. Um, and in real life, they took him for breakfast. They started to hear his story. He'd been uh, kicked out of school, so on and, and so forth. Michael becomes a part of their family. Uh, he starts to do well at school. His uh, athletic prowess is discovered. Uh, he's spotted. He goes to uh, university on a scholarship to play American football. And as I say, he's drafted on, becomes a professional American football player. But his life is changed, and Leanne's life is changed, and Sean's life is changed, and their children's life are changed with those two words and with that moment. Turn around. And that's what repentance means. To turn around. To make a 180 degree uh, change. To turn John will go before Jesus. And he says, mountains will be made low and uh, valleys will be raised up. And repentance requires a kind of laying low. It requires saying, I'm not going to be the center of my life anymore. I've tried living for myself. I I can't do it. I can't do this in my own strength. I can't do this on my own. I need someone to save me. I need someone to help me. I need someone to deliver me, to guide me. I need to find the truth of life, the way of life. I need to find life itself. Repentance is a humbling experience to turn your life around and uh, to start afresh. But Isaiah says also, when the Messiah comes, valleys will be filled up. Ditches will be filled in. Roads will be repaired. Crooked paths will be made straight. And there's a lifting up that happens in repentance too. Because when you say, I'm going to start again, I can't do this on my own, I need to begin again, then the Lord, he lifts us up. He runs to meet us. He throws his arms around us. He adopts us into his family. He calls us his own. Luke quotes from Isaiah. And there's another passage in Isaiah which I think powerfully sums up what repentance means, what it meant for John the Baptist, what it meant for those who are baptized by him, what it meant for the early church who proclaimed the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 55. 
Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. Let them turn to our God and he will freely pardon. Let's pray. So, Lord, we simply pray that you would help each one of us to do this. You'd help us to turn around, to change direction. To accept you as our king. To say that you are our Lord and you are our God. To order our life in accordance with your will, to follow you. Lord, we pray you'd help us to turn around from the wrong decisions we make, from the wrong actions that we live, from the lives that are unworthy of you. And Lord, we are thirsty and we come to you and we come to the waters. And we are hungry and we come to you, the bread of life. And we turn to you afresh and Lord, we say, Lord, forgive us. Lord, pardon us. Lord, set our feet on solid ground. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.